0: Well, welcome back to my study. We are continuing looking at the subject of fighting off fear because we're still in this COVID-19 thing. Now, I mentioned this last week. It appears that now it's diminishing. There may be a second wave. Nobody knows. But I will say this to you. I think the primary fear that people are fighting off right now is fear about their finances and fear about the economy fear about being able to pay bills, just fear if I'm going to be able to make it. So it seems to me that we share the same sentiment that Joe Lewis, the great heavyweight champ of the 50s and early 40s, I guess. Joe Lewis, uh, man, he was a great fighter. And Joe Lewis said one time, he said, you know, I don't actually love money, but it has a way of calming my nerves. I say amen to that. Um, (laughs) Money has a way of calming the nerves. I think the greatest fear that people are dealing with right now is the fear of the economic uncertainty and the fragility of the economy. How soon will it come back? Some states are starting to open up. I live in Texas. They're, They're opening up tomorrow starting to in phases. Other uh, governors have said, there is no, no, we're, we're not opening up and it's going to be this way for a while. If you're an employer, you're fighting off fear. Because the question is, how long uh, we haven't been open for X amount of time. We need to open as soon as we possibly can. Will people come back? How long will it take us to get back on our feet? How can I rehire people? You're, you're trying to figure out if you can keep your business alive, and if you if you can um, if you can resurrect it, that's that's your fear, and you're afraid it might go down because at a certain point, if you can't open up, it's going to go down. You're going to run out of money, and you just can't continue, and you may have to file for bankruptcy. So that's the side. If you're an employer, if you're an employee, uh, you're fighting off fear as well because. You're, maybe you've been furloughed, or maybe you still have a job, but if this continues at some point, they're going to let you go. And then how will you find another job in your field, because no one else in your field is... And see, that's where you get into, you never have just one anxious thought. Psalm 94, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight in my soul. The only stability there is right now is a trust in God. The only stability there is for anybody right now is trusting in the promises of God. This is how you fight off fear. And that's, that's our core message here, and that's the core message of the Bible. Uh, Two to three hundred times in Scripture, depending upon the wording you read in the Bible, fear not, fear not, fear not. Why is it in there so many times? Because there's always something to fear. So what do we need? We need God's wisdom how do I navigate this? What's going to happen to me economically? One of two things is going to happen. The first one is, is that God will deliver you. There are times when God delivers us. Here's the second option. There are times when God does not deliver us, but He disappoints us. And our dreams die, and what He does... You say, wait a minute, I don't want to hear this. Well, <laughs> you need to hear it, because sometimes it happens. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, Job says. There, there is another possibility, and that possibility is He will not deliver you, but He will disappoint you. And your dream will die. But in doing that, He will redirect you to greater blessing, than you could ever ask or think. That's how God works. Those are the two options. And those are really the only two options. He will either deliver you, or He will disappoint you and bring something better into your life. But either way, He's going to rescue you. He knows what He's doing. And you say, well, I vote for the first. I want to be delivered. Well, everyone wants to be delivered. And you've had plenty of deliverances, and I have too. But sometimes God does His greatest work when he disappoints us. What's going on right now? Uh, uh, So many people are are frantic, people that are used to being in control. And that's uh, one of the major idols of our culture is is control. I'm in control of my life. I was reading this morning um, an article by a gentleman who was analyzing atheism. And it's very interesting because basically uh, it, is a, it is an attitude of great hubris and arrogance that I need no one besides myself. I am in absolute control of my life. I don't need God. In, in times like this, you need God. Yeah, it, you desperately need God. Yeah, you can't breathe without Him. He sustains us. He keeps us going. This is not a random event, this COVID-19 that interrupted our lives. There is a phrase that is used in 1 Kings 12, verse 15, speaking of an incident in the nation of Israel. And I won't go into the details, except to say that there was a crisis, and as a result of the crisis, and as a result of a bad decision from an immature king, The nation, as they moved ahead, they were split, and they were never the same again as they were before. And that is summarized by this statement. It was a turn of events from the Lord. God is sovereign over everything. Psalm 119, verse 91, For all things are your servants. All things are your servants. Economic crises. He's the master, they're the servant. Calamities. Everything that goes on in the world, because God is sovereign. We, we, we keep going back to these foundational truths. If God isn't sovereign, we're in big trouble. If God isn't in absolute control, we're in big trouble. And there are times, but, but see throughout the Scripture, it tells us that He is in absolute control. His throne is in the heavens, He does whatever He pleases. He raises up kings, He sets them down. He appoints the seasons and the times. When the times change, it's because God's behind it. He rules. He reigns. He sustains the creation. Uh, He is God. And if you get a grip on the sovereignty of God, it brings greater peace into your life and sustains you. When these things hit us, like COVID-19, that suddenly we're in crisis, and we weren't in crisis March 1st. We're in crisis now, and we don't know what's going to happen. But when you understand this, you know, okay, this is a turn of events from the Lord. This just didn't happen. It it just isn't random. It's not because of this, or this politician, or this group, or what. Yeah, there's a human element, but overall... This is a turn of events from the Lord. And He's got something in mind for me in the midst of it. God runs the whole world, but in the midst of this stuff, He's got something in mind for me. He's got a plan for me. He's got a plan for my kids. This this is the fact of the matter. So, what what is God going to do with my life? Well, either way, whether He delivers me, or whether He disappoints me and then redirects me, He's going to rescue me. I'm going to be fine. He's got me. The mind of man, Proverbs 16, 9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So let's say the Lord disappoints you, and you don't get the job back that you thought you were going to get, or your business does not come back. That'd be a disappointment. That would be a devastating loss. Of course it would be. But what it really means is that God is redirecting your path to something better. Oftentimes, a turn of events, you know, our our lives are comprised of chapters. I've always loved reading biographies, and I'm in my office, and i got a lot of books in here, and there's a whole wall over there of biographies. And every one of those biographies breaks up in the chapters. Well, you know, when I die, no one's going to write a book about my life, and probably not about you. But nevertheless, our lives break up in the chapters don't they you can look back over your life and don't you see chapters i mean you really do you could outline them and and you could you could write down the years you know oh that chapter started in 1990 and went to 1995. and chapters have a beginning a middle and an end and then there's a transition oh maybe you lost a job and when you lose a job you're frantic why because you don't know what's next. You can't see the next chapter. David said in Psalm 139, you've enclosed me behind and before. What he's talking about is he looks over his life, he looks over his past life, you've enclosed me behind. He sees the hand of God over every chapter of his life leading up to where he is right then. But then he says, not only have you enclosed me behind, but you've enclosed me before. What he's saying is, is that just as God... And you can see the chapters in your past and how God navigated you. But just as God has written chapters that you can see now in your past because you've come through them, He has written chapters in the future that are as clearly marked and delineated as the ones that you've already come through. You just can't see them and you don't know what they are. So what does that mean? You're going to have to trust Him for your future. So even if the answer for you right now in this crisis would not be, deliverance, but it would be disappointment, and your dream would die, all it means is that something, that God has something in mind for you that is better, infinitely better. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love Him. Uh, Another word for that uh, is cross-providence. Some of the old Puritan pastors, and we've talked about in this study, we've talked about the providence of God, the provision of God what's a cross providence it's when god seems to be working against you it's when god seems to be frustrating what you want him to do it's when you can't catch a break from god i've used this illustration before that i've had times in my life i had a season one time where i i, I honestly felt like a quarterback and i'm on god's team my jersey says yay jesus yay god yay bible and and I'm on his team, and I take the snap from the center, and I go back to throw a pass, and my linemen turn around and come after me. When you're in a cross providence, it seems like God's against you, and He's trying to bring you down. It's uh, And it doesn't make sense, but sometimes God doesn't make sense. In Isaiah 55:8, 8, God says, My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, and my thoughts above of your thoughts. My dad loved me. My dad was a, was a darn good dad. He was a great dad. He had flaws like everybody else, but I was very blessed to have him. When I was a kid, there were times I did not understand my dad and why he was telling me to do this and why he wouldn't let me do this. And I didn't get it, and I'd get angry, and I'd get mad. And I, I mean, I was so mad I could hardly stand it. And I thought, I'll never be that mean to my kids when I'm a dad. Well, (laughs) fast forward at 25 years. And what my dad was saying to me and doing to me, I was saying the same things and doing the same things to my kids. And were they mad? Oh, yeah. And now my kids have kids. And what are they doing? They're doing the same thing. Because, see, when we're young and when we're immature, we don't get him. But later, as an adult, we, we understand the wisdom behind it. Now, here's the thing about God. God is incomprehensible. And there are times He will baffle us, and we will not get it, and we will not understand. But here's what happens. As you walk through life with Him, you learn that even when you don't get it, you can trust Him because He's good. You can trust Him with your life. Psalm 119 also says the Lord is good and does good. And even when you can't see it, even when there's a grievous setback or a devastating loss, he's got something in mind. Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not into your own understanding, but acknowledge Him in all your ways, and what? And He will direct your path better than you can direct it. When when you read the Scriptures, You see God often doing a cross-providence. He did it with Joseph. My gosh, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery when he was a kid. That was horrible. That was evil. Later, he said to his brothers, after their father died and he was co-ruler of Egypt, and his brothers were afraid now he's going to come and get us, in Genesis 50, and take vengeance on us, Joseph said, you intended it for evil but God intended it for good to bring about this present result. That's true in our lives. When there is a deep disappointment, when there is a devastating loss, He's going to turn it for your good. He doesn't tell us when. He doesn't tell us how. Does it hurt? Is it painful? Does it break our hearts? Yeah. But He's going to turn it for good. In His time, And in His way. This is what He does. He can be trusted. When you look at Scripture, you see this occurring. Cross-providences and turn of events, and you see disappointments. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, You remember our affliction in Asia when we were afflicted beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life itself. Paul got so overwhelmed and stressed out that at a certain point, he just wished that he could die and go on to heaven. Now, I remember when I read that verse in the midst of a great depression in my early 30s, and, and it encouraged me that Paul felt as badly as I did. I mean, sometimes life's so hard, you just wish that the Lord would take you. Uh, why does the Lord put us in those positions? Well, Paul, Paul goes on... And in the next breath, he said, this happened to me so that I would learn not to trust in myself, but in God who raises the dead. This is all about learning to trust God and that he can be trusted. This is why he disappoints us. I, um, John Newton, I've quoted from him before, and I quoted this letter that he wrote to a man who wrote to him who had had a devastating loss and a disappointment from the Lord and he couldn't understand it. A couple weeks ago, I read the first section of this, but I want to read it again. John Newton wrote back to him, August 17, 1767. It is indeed natural for us to wish and to plan, and it is merciful in the Lord to disappoint our plans and to cross our wishes. Now, I'm going to read that again, because you don't hear this too often these days. It is indeed natural for us to wish and to plan. The mind of man plans his way, Proverbs 16 says. And we do make our plans nothing wrong with planning Uh, you got to have some kind of plan james says don't say next year we're going to go to this city and do this business but say if the lord wills you see but you got to make plans newton says it is indeed natural for us to wish in the plan and it is merciful in the lord to disappoint our plans and to cross our wishes it's merciful For we cannot be safe, much less happy, but in proportion as we are weaned from our own wills and made simply desirous of being directed by His guidance. This truth we seldom learn without being trained a while in the school of disappointment. So that's why I said there are two options. In this economic uncertainty, God will either deliver you or He will disappoint you. Yeah, but I don't want to be disappointed. Well, listen to what Newton says. The schemes we form look so plausible and convenient that when they are broken, we are ready to say, What a pity! We try again, and with no better success, we are grieved and perhaps angry and plan out another, and so on at length. In the course of time, experience and observation begin to convince us that we are not more able than we are worthy to choose a right for ourselves. In other words, we don't know what we're doing. Uh, the Lord knows what's best. Proverbs 16, verse 9. The mind of man plans his way, uh, but the Lord directs his steps. What that's talking about is a redirect. It's a mercy when God disappoints our plans that we hold on to so tightly because we think they're best when in actuality they're not best. How would we know that they're best? He knows what's best. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. That's a redirection. And for some folks listening to this, there's going to be a redirection in your life. And then he goes on in this letter and talks about the fact that God interrupts our plans and He redirects us, and it's a mercy when He does it. It's interesting, John Newton, I've got several biographies I was looking at last night. Here's one that Jonathan Aitken did a number of years ago that's very good. John Newton was a pastor. He wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. He was a uh, young man who had a godly mother. His mother died when he was six. His father, who was a sea captain, real rough guy, not a believer, remarried a woman that really had nothing to do with him. He went to sea at a very early age. He was rough. He was a blasphemer. He was hard-hearted. He was was a reprobate. He finally became the captain of a slave ship that ran slaves from Africa into different parts of the British Empire. And the Lord began to work on him. And it's a fascinating story. What happened to John Newton was that at a certain point, the Lord finally broke through and he turned to the Lord. Now, he continued to be the captain of a slave ship, but because the Lord had changed his heart. Now, did he immediately become a mature Christian man who understood the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation? No, that takes a long time. But he, there was a change, but he had a lot of growing to do he was still the captain of a slave ship, but he immediately began to to treat those people much better than he ever had before and have a concern for them. But the Lord had something else in mind for him. He was uh, making a lot of money. He was doing very well. He was very successful. Yet at the same time, there was a growing hunger in his heart to know more of the word and to know more of the truth. He was scheduled to take out another ship in the next day or two when suddenly he was hit with a stroke or with an epileptic seizure. We're not exactly sure what it was. But he was healthy as a horse, had never been sick like this before, and never had anything like this again for the rest of his life, and he died at 81. It was a one-time occurrence, and God put him down. And because God put him down, he was not able to get on that ship and sail. That was the end of of his career as a captain of a slaver ship. And for the next five months, so what happened? He suddenly was in crisis economically, and he lost his income, and he was in dire straits. They have quotes from his diary, how tough it was, how hard it was, but he went through a time of intense economic crisis was verging on bankruptcy. And then out of nowhere, the Lord delivered him and gave him a position as surveyor of the tides for a certain port. That was like the head customs agent. He had about 60 people under him. And it was a job that was a gift from God. It was a good salary. For the next next 10 years, he had that job. What was interesting about that job is that one week was intense. He put in a lot of hours. The next week, he had a lot of time for his study for meeting with different pastors. The next week was intense on the job. The next week it was low-key. That was how it was for 10 years. And he got into the Word. He had a desire. He, he taught himself the original languages. He, uh, he began to read theology. He had a desire to become a pastor. And after years and years of waiting, what happened was and he never wanted to leave the ship. He never wanted to leave being a captain of a ship. But God redirected him, and he became a pastor, and he became a hymn writer. When he was a pastor in this little town of Olney, there was a very prosperous couple. And they had a nephew, a young boy named William Wilberforce, who would visit them from London occasionally, and he would go to church and listen to John Newton preach. And he loved John Newton, even as a little boy. And he, Newton would go over for dinner, and they they developed a relationship. Later, in his 20s, William Wilberforce was a, won a seat in Parliament. He was fabulously wealthy. And he loved the Lord, and he was delving in the Scriptures. And he came back, and he was very tight with the Prime Minister, William Pitt, He comes back to see Newton. He's 22, 23, 24, and he says to Newton, I feel that God's calling me to be a pastor. And Newton listens to him, and Newton says, you should not become a pastor. You should stay in politics. God has put you there for a reason. And what happened was William Wilberforce became the single driving force in England to fight against slavery. And the man Behind the curtain who was encouraging him and mentoring him was the former slave captain, John Newton, whose heart had been changed and who was growing in the Lord and who was mentoring this young man. And it was years and years later that William Wilberforce, God used him to break the back of slavery in the British Empire. And the man who stood with him was John Newton. Now that's the providence of God. Was was Newton put down? Oh yeah, he was physically put down. And then God raised him right back up because God was redirecting him. Was there disappointment? Oh, he knew all about disappointment. That's why he could write letters about disappointment because that was his story. He understood it. He'd been trained in the school of disappointment. This is how God still works in the lives of His people. Over the year, I've been in men's ministry since 1990, pretty much full-time. Before that, I was a pastor of three small churches. And in the 90s, I, I, I've done a lot of conferences. I've spoken at huge events for Promise Keepers, stadium events. I mean, it was shocking. I thought, what am I doing here? And it was just a movement of God. It was a turn of events from the Lord. And a lot of men were... Uh, brought to the Lord, and there is fruit from that ministry going on even today. But it was a very unique time. And then we were doing a lot of conferences, our own ministry. But I was doing 30, 35 conferences a year. And at these conferences, we'd usually take an hour. I would teach three or four times. We'd take a break, and we'd do a question and answer period. Or I'd have lunch with a bunch of pastors. And every time, I'd get this question. So Steve, how did you get into men's ministry? What was your plan? And every t- and to this day, I laugh. Every time I hear that, how did you get into men's ministry? What was your plan? I have to laugh because I had no plan. I, I got into men's ministry because God disappointed me and redirected me. I've seen God deliver me. I've seen some incredible things. But there was a season in, in my life where we had moved halfway across the country. We had some relationships with a great church, and they wanted to plant a new church, and we prayed about it for a year, and we moved. And it, it was really exciting, and I was writing my dissertation at Dallas Seminary on this new model of how to plant a church. And things were going great until we hit the one-year mark, and then we had conflict. <clears throat> Good people, but we suddenly saw things differently, and we got crossways, and. Looking back, I'll tell you what it was. Because everybody loved the Lord, it was a turn of events from the Lord. The Lord was up to something. Now, did I know what was going on? Did Mary know what was going on? No. Did those folks know what was going on? All we knew was we, we were going like this. And suddenly there was an impasse. And we had to actually bring in an arbitration, a Christian arbitration guy, to help us work it out. And Mary and I were scheduled to go do a marriage conference, And I said to the elders, I said, hey, listen, I'm sure they can get another speaker. Why don't we just stay here and work this out? No, you go ahead. That's all right. Just go ahead. And so we did. Um, Most of the sessions, all the sessions were husbands and wives together, and uh, I was teaching along with another guy. But on Sunday morning, I was doing a session just for the men, and Mary was teaching the ladies. I was teaching on how to be a spiritual leader of your home. And when I'm done, and this had never happened before, the first guy who came up to me said, so Steve, what have you written on this? No one had ever asked me that before. I I said, well, nothing. He said, what has been written on it? And that was 1987, and I said, well, I honestly, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. He said, oh, okay. The next guy comes up to me, what have you written on this? I gave him the same answer, the next guy, the next guy between 12 and 15 guys in a row asked me what have you written on this and on the plane going home it was very apparent as Mary and I were talking that should be my dissertation topic so I had to go back meet with the elders and as we had this meeting with the arbiter the arbitration man he said so here's what the elders would like to propose and I thought they were going to ask me to leave you stay here and you preach on Sundays but they don't want you coming into the office during the week And I said, really? So I, I, you know, maybe 12 hours on getting a sermon ready. I I guess I could do 15, um, but that leaves, you know, quite a bit of time. Well, aren't you working on that dissertation down at the seminary? Yeah. Well, why don't you, doesn't that take research? I said, yeah. Why don't you just do that? So I said, okay. And I'd gone down to the seminary, gotten approval. I said, I would like to write about Christian men and what their needs are and what their struggles are, and they said, great, I wound up surveying a thousand men across the United States. And I've got, I've got the dissertation over there and it's about that thick. I was paid to write that dissertation on men and to preach, but don't go into the office. And each week I'd get a knot in my stomach as go to the, I'd go to the elders' meeting because I was afraid they were going to say, we don't want to continue this, we want you to find another ministry and leave. But that never happened. And then when I finished the dissertation, a publisher <clears throat> became aware of my, what I'd done and said, that's a book. You ought to write a book. So I went back to the board and I said, I've got a publisher. They want me to turn this into a book. And they said, yeah, just write the book. Don't come into the office. Just write the book. That turned into a new book called Point Man. And my whole time I'm praying, Lord, let me just finish this book before they asked me to leave. I finished the book, and three weeks later, I got a phone call. They want you to step down. I look back on, and that's how I got on. So when I'm asked, so Steve, how did, you know, you're doing all these men's conferences all over the country and all this stuff. How, would you, how did you get in the men's industry? What was your plan? And, and I would say to them, well, you want the real answer or a nice answer? Well, we want the real answer. I said, I was asked to leave a church. And they're all shocked. Uh, In in other words, (laughs) they showed me the door. And, And you know what? It was time. It was the right thing. And later we were able to reconcile and the Lord worked it out. It was a good thing. But it was a turn of events from the Lord. And I've experienced this in my own life. And it's a hard thing when the Lord disappoints your plans. I thought I would always be a pastor. But The man who was also the arbitration guy had met with Mary and I a year or so before and said, you know, Steve, as I look at your gifts, and he had worked with a lot of Christian leaders, he said, I wouldn't be surprised if you won't be long-term a senior pastor. And I said, well, I've always wanted to be in ministry. He said, oh, you'll be in ministry, but he said, the way the Lord's put you together, he said, it really seems to me that, he said, do you like to write? And I said, Yeah, I love to write. He said, I can see you doing conference ministry, and you do two things you speak at conferences and you write books. He nailed it. That's what the Lord had for me up until this very day. But you see, I was very comfortable doing what I was doing. But it was a mercy of the Lord that He um, crossed my wishes. It was a mercy. And you know what he did? He did something, well, Ephesians says it best. Now to him who was able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything you could ever ask or think. I never saw any of this. God's been good. He may deliver you in this situation, but if he disappoints you, trust him. Because he's got something better in mind. He's a great father and he's a great savior. Father, we thank You for the way You work in our lives, that we can trust You. Help us to hold on to Your Word. Help us to hold on to Your promises. Help us to be obedient and not touch sin with a 10-foot pole. And when we do, to confess it immediately and to keep clean with You. We, We want Your favor, and we want Your wisdom, and we want Your guidance. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.